Hello everyone and welcome to my second digital talk. I have two distinguished guests and dear friends with me today, Dr. Harold Malmgren and Albert Marco. Dr. Malmgren began government service under President Kennedy as advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Under President Johnson, he was his first assistant U.S. First Assistant U.S. Trade Representative. He wrote International Economic Peacekeeping in Phase 2, a guide for trade liberalization negotiations in the 70s and 80s during the time. In 1971-72, he was Principal Advisor to the to President Nixon, who subsequently appointed him to Principal Deputy U.S. Trade Representative with the rank of ambassador. As such, he was chief US trade negotiator under presidents Nixon and Ford. Since 1977, he has pursued a stimulating and insightful career as a globally recognized financial, geoeconomic and geopolitical strategist. And, his, uh, and he has authored numerous peer reviewed scholarly articles. Uh, Mr. Mann Mr. Marco, I and Albert writing a book on China and Russia called The Dragon Bear. Albert Marco, my second guest, has consulted with many US members of the Congress in the House of Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as other key stakeholders on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch who deal with global affairs, international security and finance matters. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, the title for today's talk is Disease, Disorder, uh, Disunity, which exemplifies huge tectonic shifts uh, in the global order with the clear trend of more disorder uh, that are also currently being accelerated by the COVID-19 virus outbreak and which might result in more disunity in the transatlantic community. Why? Because all nations are currently acting on their own with the dire consequence for the global system. So my first question is, how do you assess uh, the current developments and what kind of outcome do you expect uh, in the short term? That means 12 to 18 months. Uh, and please consider also uh, the uh, transition period of the global system, its polarity, and also the trend of strengthening nationalism that Mr. Malmgren has been pointing to for the last several years. So, Harold, the word is yours. <clears throat> well, Valina, um, the world economy was already slipping into a slowdown at the end of last year, the virus pandemic became a shock to a system that was already weakening and has dramatically brought to a halt many elements of the world economy. World trade has collapsed. National production has, in many sectors has collapsed. Um, and this virus, we don't yet fully understand. 
because it is uh, unlike the popular uh, description, it is not a typical flu virus. It is a virus which attacks not only the lungs, but other body organs and does damage. Even if you uh, come out of it without uh, deep problems, uh, it does attack and leave behind damage to the heart, the neurological system, the kidneys, so it is unlike any such virus we have seen for what the effects will be in the next year or two. We don't know if it will be replicated or one can be reinfected. What we have is a very deeply slowing global economy and the drivers are not reviving. China is still trapped in a deep downturn. Um, there is both going to pick up. Uh, it trapped in zero or very slight positive. The U.S. and hopes for um, a rebound, but it is unlikely to to show much rebound any time this year, probably any weekend next year. And for Europe, well, Europe already in decline before the is not likely to come out a positive until 21. So, <clears throat> This is happening at a time of weak national leadership. Uh, is were ready or prepared. Few of the leaders have. They are in each of their countries. <clears throat> we have improvisation at the national level. Uh, not no coherent strategy and no attempt at international coordination other than exchange of Zoom calls, but uh, no agenda. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Harold. Albert, well, what is your take? We, we, uh, Oh, well, I mean, to, to, to carry on from what Harold was saying, I mean, w what we're seeing is a resurgence of the nation state mentality, which is an inevitable outcome from the economic atmosphere, as uh, Harold pointed out. I mean, protectionism is just a symptom of um, uh, global trade contracting. Uh, I think we've seen that since 2013, I believe, it started to contract. Um, you know, when you look at when you look at the global order, you know, capitals specifically in the, in the European Union, they're going to look to safeguard their own uh, structures of power. It's, it's, it's an age-old phenomenon. It's nothing new. People seem to have uh, forgotten those lessons from, from, from the days of war, you know, decades ago. But, um, you know, this is where idealism fails in the face of realism. You know, domestic politics is what drives international relations, both politically and economically. A lot of the trade deals 
that Harold himself had negotiated, you know, they follow the same line of thinking. I, I mean, uh, specifically the European and the European and U.S. Uh, agriculture uh, trade uh, disputes had followed along these lines, where the French and the Germans had disagreements on how to proceed with the United States. Um, I believe Harold can uh, touch a little bit more on that, specifically on uh, uh, of trade deals and multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Um, that reminds me of a question that uh, is directly related to the first one. And before I ask the question, Harold, just please try to uh, to, to stabilize your uh, device uh, so that we have a better, uh, also better connection. Okay. Uh, so my second question that is directly related to the first one is. Um, linked to the topic of fragmentation uh, in the transatlantic community. Um, Albert mentioned, uh, for instance, European Union member states. So we, of course, witnessed uh, the situation that uh, European member states acted on their own once uh, the virus outbreak hit the old continent. Uh, Right now, we are already witnessing the first repercussions, uh, economic uh, repercussions of COVID-19, the euro zone uh, area, that is the area with uh, member states having uh, the euro as a currency, uh, well plunged in a record contraction as expected. The output in the uh, the 19 countries uh, shrank to uh, 3.8%. In the United States, uh, I think was 4.5%. And uh, countries such as France and Spain um, have limited room to spend their way out of the pandemic crisis as compared to other countries such as Germany. So we obviously have on the old continent a situation of cleavages that probably will be strengthened. Uh, Cleavages between the West and the East when it comes to rule of law, certain uh, norms and, uh, and values. But then again, we have also a cleavage between the North and the South when it comes to economic uh, responses and um, financial uh, means uh, to, to, to adequately uh, prepare for the time after COVID-19. So there is certainly a kind of ex- expectation for fragmentation. Uh, Then again, we have also witnessed that on the side of the United States, the states also presented different ideas and approaches how to respond to COVID-19. My question is, do you expect that there will be more fragmentation in the transatlantic community? As such, uh, that means between the United States and Europe. And then again, these internal cleavages, would they lead to a more disunity because this is also part of our title uh to more disunity that will actually affect also the global affairs well the i think alberto the the situation is rising nationalism and within nations even rising your law Socialism, for example, in the, we are finding where we are discovering we are a federation of states, and the states are each going in their own ways. Um, uh, in 
as a policy. But I think the same thing in Europe, within Europe, before we talk about transatlantic agendas, the reality is that there will be no coherence. Um, Spain, Italy, and France one kind of fiscal policy. Germany is agreed on only one French, Italians, and Spanish want. Uh, Germany is busy re redefining its own Mrs. Time has come to an end, but there's no emerging. Uh, even the CDU itself cannot yet decide on the successor. Uh, this is all happening at the time when Brexit, in theory, is moving along uh, by the calendar more than by the Election may may be completed this year or may not, but it will rupture relations with several countries on the continent. And I think see Germany do a turnabout and become racy, uh, and it would be France being so. It's very hard to say what will happen to global relations. We do know that the U.S. division with China is deepening. Uh, we can now see that some other countries in Europe and areas like Australia are also sharing in the discontent with China. So this is a year with um, deepening uh, fragmentation. Um, uh, and listening that eager to, uh, and reassert relationships on a global scale. Uh, after the U.S. elections, that may change. But for the time being, there is no leader seeing the opportunity. The only leader who's talking a lot about what should be done is Macron. And he has huge power in France over foreign policy, and no power domestically. So he is a voice in the wilderness. So this is the, where we are. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes. Thank you, Harold. Albert, what is your take? Do you, do you think that uh, the recession, the consequences from uh, the recession would actually hit the strategic alliance of uh, NATO and other strategic partnerships that uh, the transatlantic community is building on. How do you see this? Well, <clears throat> when you talk about fragmentation, uh, you know, there's two separate, there's two separate uh, ways I'm looking at it. There's one, there's fragmentation within the United States, which is purely political for the upcoming election. I mean, you have state to state issues where one state wants to shut down to stress the unemployment rates in the, in, the, in the economy to go against Trump in November's election. And then you have the Republican-led states that want to open up, you know, for the same reason for the election. Um, on the European side, it gets interesting because right now the Europeans have a dollar shortage, a dollar liquidity uh, issue. Harold and I have talked about this at length for years. 
Um, right, what they're doing now is they're jockeying for a position to get euro dollar liquidity from the United States. Unfortunately, that conflicts with the European Union's you know, ideology of being together. France is going to do what France is going to do for their own interests. The Germans are going to do what they're going to do for their own interests. Uh, you can't blame them, realistically. Um, you know, the, the world is getting a real deep lesson right now on how important the euro dollar is to economic trade. It, it's, it's, it's the oil that greases the wheels of trade globally. And, the, you know, and it is so important right now for the Europeans to get a hold of it and to stabilize their own economy and keep their social programs intact. Otherwise, the, the people in power are going to face motives next year, specifically Macron, uh, Merkel's uh, successors, whoever they might be uh, jockeying for position at the moment also. Uh, Albert, you mentioned the oil dollar system. Maybe you can you can explain talk in about several sentences. What... Yeah, Harold. Well, uh, transatlantic from uh, all these economic questions. What I see is a reconfiguration of interests in Europe about security, um, separate from the public rhetoric, the military of some of the countries in Europe beginning to together uh, on their own agendas, uh, particularly the Scandinavian countries are really on a separate integrated defense planning. And <clears throat> They are um, working closely with the U.S. and U.K. And Belgium and the Netherlands have joined that grouping. And now the German military, um, which is no longer under close management by the German government, is itself expressing with German industry the US-UK-led Northern European structure. So, which leaves much of the rest of Europe in limbo. There is no sector in Europe uh, of those countries in the North in any idea that Macron is, is presenting. There's zero interest. As for Italy, at the far end, Italy with so it's part of, and now it's being enhanced and all the future development of aircraft and the force capabilities will be moving in a, in a rather different direction with some of Europe going with it and the rest of Europe being left as orphans. Um, I think, I personally believe that we're going to see this merges with another configuration, which is um, tying in Australia and Japan in the Asian Pacific. Now, Australia is um, unexpectedly in most people's thinking is offering a vast territory um, 
a large amount of space that is relatively uninhabited for <clears throat> testing weapons and training I think Harold got cut off, but uh, to, to carry on from that, yeah. um, you, you'll notice that you know the interconnectivity between the United States and Europe is is a special partnership. Um, you, Trump Trump has toned down the rhetoric of uh, NATO's two percent threshold, as you've seen. You haven't heard a thing about it lately, you know, and um, that that just goes to show you how uh, how how vital the Europe, you know, the European defense umbrella to the United States is a key component as i know the writer by the politicians and the twitter sphere is you know the heck with the eu and we should do you know trump should do everything for the united states but the reality is we need that defense sector we need that umbrella we do need the europeans as the europeans need the united states There is a kind of interdependence <clears throat> that you don't see being hindered by the by the uh, COVID-19. Uh, even though that there are signs of disunity, you don't see Albert uh, a kind of a, a kind of a fragmentation specifically in the defense security and defense sector because this is the one side of the the, the coin, right? Yeah, that's one yeah. side of the Before coin. Before we move to the other side of the coin, yeah. Yeah, that's that's one side of the coin. You know, you know, you, you know. This is probably leading into the next topic. But you know, everyone has these key words nowadays called you know the global system reset. Well, that that has different connotations for different people, right? One's economic, one's military. You know, one's social. You can go down the list, right? But in my opinion, uh, and I'd love for Harold to chime in after me. But uh, in my opinion, it, there is no global reset, but more so as a global sharpening. The global order is being sharpened right now and across the lines of, you know, where Europe stands with the United States, where Australia, where India stands uh, in comparison to um, the Dragon Bears uh, advances geopolitically and geoeconomically across the world. Harold? <clears throat> mm -hmm. Well, redefining... Redefining the interests um, is necessitated by the halt of economies. So where is it that their, each country's interest lies? And during this downturn, which I, I expect will last much longer and will be much deeper, this economic downturn, than most of the uh, uh, social media are talking about we're going to what are the basic uh, new directions in which the world economy will be moving and in that process many things are happening one, one is as it's widely discussed that supply chains are being restructured because uh, after years of building supply chains around just in time management of inventories and the cheapest sources we're discovering we have to have resilience we have to have security of supply chains and better we should do more of supplies locally so all of that is at work Out of, as the world economy begins to recover it will be differently configured than it was a year or two ago 
going to see big changes in interaction of interest among some countries versus others. But this leaves a question uh, which you'll come to, but maybe should discuss now on that through Dragon Bear. What we have in Dragon Bear is a China deeply in entrapped in a downturn that they cannot because the, the most important part of escaping the downturn is exports, but there is no demand, no significant new demand to be expected for Chinese exports to the world. Uh, they, they will have to do the, the rebuild from they have that capability. We'll see. For Russia, they are really hurt by this crash in oil and the downturn in industry worldwide means there's little demand for their resources. Um, so mm -hmm. an economy dependent on oil and resources is really going to be cast adrift. It will be how much do China and Russia need each other when both are of their own. Uh, I think we'll see Dragon Bear is increasingly weak, at least in terms of economic power. But that, <clears throat> that may motivate them to be more aggressive in the in the security. Mm -hmm. But in in a way, Dragon Bear will be a side player as the world gets through this. Uh, um, slow, painful recovery to this downturn, which has been the pandemic. Yeah, we can, Harold, um, <clears throat> that's absolutely correct. I agree on all your points, but just to add on to that, um, what we're seeing is an accelerated reconfiguration away from, uh, away from the Chinese manufacturing dominance back into like you said, local economies. Uh, I foresee um, the U.S. and North America regaining some manufacturing back here. Um, but that, you know, as much as the negative stuff coming out about Europe, the econo economy and whatnot, they actually have a really good position right now, specifically the German sector in um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, machinery. Um, they're the leaders. I believe it's uh, German and Swedish companies are the leaders in HVAC systems and sterile and non-sterile pharmaceutical industries. They could easily finance uh, a manufacturing coming back into Eastern Europe and even parts of uh, North Africa, which would then lead them to gain influence for, the, for their export economies. You know, Germany, Germany specifically needs something to do. They need something. Uh, to jumpstart their uh, economic engine right now, uh, specifically uh, exports um, in manufacturing, because they're going to definitely lose a lot of auto sector jobs in the coming years, both because of a slowdown and because, as you said before on Twitter, uh, they'll, they'll just move to the United States where the local, where their market is. Mm -hmm. So you yeah, see, no, I think you the... see possibilities. You clearly see possibilities for. Uh, reconfiguration of uh, global supply chains, but uh, certainly not in the short term, rather than in the mid term, because it takes time. 
to do so. And then again, some regions will be most likely the winners of this kind of reconfigurations. We are going to have uh, also losers, right? So not every region or every group of countries will actually uh, capitalize on this kind of reconfiguration. And there are indeed not so many options right now to reconfigure uh, existing supply chains. That's a very long-term systemic process, the way I understand it. So uh, do you actually foresee also a sort of um, uh, kind of emergence of new type of uh, alliances and partnerships when it comes to the transport? where we will basically witness also uh, new, so to say, new free riders. India was mentioned. Um, I suppose that Russia will also play a kind of a role of a free rider due to its uh, shrinking uh, due economic influence uh, beyond, of course, the near uproad. Uh, and uh, maybe you can see also other other regions or other free riders in the in the global affairs, uh, we also see a trend of bilateralization of the global affairs of the international relations. How do you see this, Harold? Yeah, the um, when we talk about country, India is important. Uh, India, India's population will exceed that of China in the next several years. And India has vast potential to be a, a large player. But India, as it has been doing over the years, has been caught in domestic political confusion. And it, it, the leadership simply cannot get a grip um, on the Indian people. and, and create some kind of in theory should be growing at six to seven and should be already a powerhouse but it is sluggish and it can't find it in dealing with other countries except uh, a balance between doesn't want to be much Russia or too much U.S. oriented, trying to see of, of the fence, but neither coming down on one side or the other. So as long as India stays in that framework, it will not be an important factor. Um, so then the others, we the Turkey kind of situation, attempt to build a greater power structure in the region, but uh, without economic foundation, it will not continue. It will collapse at some point. Uh, it's too fragile. The Pakistan remains, again, very confused society, has nuclear weapons, has great capabilities, but can't seem to get itself organized. So, will that change? Uh, get a grip on their, their role and 
So, um, but yes, there will be reconfiguration of interest. Now, the supply chain thing, there are people who think we're going to make major changes in the U.S. relationship with China regarding supplies. I think it's going really fast. Uh, I think we're going to separate the supplies, not only healthcare and pharmaceutical uh, in uh, semiconductors, evolution in thinking in the U.S. to make that all those microprocessors inside the U.S. or inside North America. Perhaps relying more heavily on Taiwan, but uh, I think things change rapidly. Um, and the ties or, or potential ties with China in areas of 5G, that's being reshaped as we regret to allow Huawei to play a large role. That's all being rethought. The, the pandemic is creating another focus, and that is how to manage physical and uh, and other forms of security. And I think we're going to see increasing cooperation um, among uh, unlikely neighbors. That is, I think Germany and UK and the US actually cooperate very closely and enhance surveillance and less and less China. The German political leadership may agree with that, but I think what happened, they're going to find a different way of proceeding. And the governments, particularly the German government, will be coming from behind trying to keep up. Yeah, Harold, you know, I. I... I, again, I agree on all those points. Again, we've discussed this on Twitter at length, specifically when you mentioned India. Um, you know, when we start talking about reconfiguration, it, it's really necessary to, to actually measure it out sector by sector. Uh, manufacturing, without a doubt, is coming back to both the European borders and American borders. But when you start talking about, like, in the pharmaceutical industry, there's something called active pharmaceutical ingredients. They're pollution heavy. Uh, the United States and Europe have strict environmental laws, whereas India doesn't. So the, those APIs will definitely stay within uh, India. Um, the Germans could definitely lead something back to European, Europe side uh, in maybe Turkey, uh, Egypt. Um, you know, this, this type of reconfiguration, although starts with the United States and the Federal Reserve providing liquidity, branching out to the UK, with the Germans, with the Austrians, with the French, and this exactly like you were discussing, Harold, a more a tightly knit group um, uh, looking at what sectors that they can advance their economic interests in. Um, the Germans, I, you know, as much as, as much as, like I said, as much as I like to pick on the Germans every once in a while, they are going to be, they are the economic leader of Europe. They still going forward will be the economic leader of Europe, but all this is going to be financed by um, London. So um, like you said, they will be very tightly knit and I see cooperation actually 
um, exceeding all our expectations, even our most optimistic one coming going forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so there is uh, the way I see it and the way you outlined it, uh, there is a role also for the European Union member states and for the European Union as a collective actor. Uh, let me remind you that uh, there will be a decision on the 6th of May by the OECO that uh, is uh, the Council, the European Council, basically these are the decision makers from the member states uh, on a recovery fund and uh, uh, it is allegedly going to be around 1.5, maybe to even 2, 2 trillion of uh, euro that will be offered for, uh, for the next, uh, you know, probably one, two years at least, uh, for the member states to uh, basically try to revive their economies. So, and, and Albert also mentioned the UK, uh, there will be indeed also cooperation between the European Union member states and UK, specifically in the uh, in the field of uh, security and defense. Uh, but then again, uh, one issue has to be uh, covered uh, as well, and we haven't talked about it uh, yet, and that is the global finance and monetary system, right? Uh, we've witnessed unprecedented, unprecedented uh, steps, unprecedented measures also, uh, uh, whatever it costs, basically, uh, by the central banks of the developed economies led by the Federal Reserve. And I would like uh, to hear your opinion on that, where we are hitting with all of this. It was, it was right to be done on the one side, but it also reminds us of another time um, the great during the great financial crisis when we witnessed a situation in which the too big to fail uh, system relevant uh, corporations, organizations were bailed out and saved. Right now we are in a sliding in a similar situation where, you know, corporations, organizations, uh, uh, offshore companies are trying to get the bell out. But then again, uh, a, we, we are seeing economies plunging. So isn't it the situation of we, in which we should actually uh, see bailouts for the too many to fail this time? That means uh, the ordinary citizens, the the, the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, those people who actually uh, can, um, you know, contribute to reviving uh, our economies. And uh, Albert, you also mentioned the euro dollar system. And when we talk about global finance system, I think that there is a lack of understanding uh, um, um, of what it means and how actually interconnected American and European uh, finance systems are. Uh, and we have, of course, witnessed already prior to the COVID-19 uh, situation of, um, of global liquidity crisis. These are systemic issues that we have to address if we are going to talk about, uh, you know, the, the day after, right? So what is your take on that? And I will like to hear the opinion of both of you. Harold. Yeah. The, uh, I I hate to be rude about this, but I will be very simple. The only central bank that matters in the world today is the Federal Reserve. Uh, overseas, 
a group of banks that are all suffering from non-performing loans and dysfunction. Uh, and industries in Europe and Asia do not get financing from European banks. They get that financing from banks that borrow in dollars. So what mainly it is London which supplies the huge little base for global finance, uh, not, not the European. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., we don't, our industry doesn't depend on banks. It depends on access to through bonds and other. Same, but the banks are not very important. Only function is the ECB additional dollars through swap lines. So the ECB is just a, a, a let's say, knee cousin in the management of world finance. I know it sounds rude, but really the reality. Um, now, where this is all going, not in a good direction, because what the central banks led by the U.S. are doing is saving large institutions and large institutions. Past practices were propping we're creating moral hazard, but we are not saving small business, or as you might say in Germany, the Mittelstand. Mm -hmm. um, so the wealth and income inequality is again, only this time widening even more than it did after the 2008 crisis. So big challenge in the year and a half to be whether governments can come to terms with the reality that ordinary people will be worse off, much worse off than they were before all this is before the pandemic. Everybody's going to be much worse off. The only people better off are the owners of very large institutions, many of which are managed. Uh, so we have, we in making worse by all the policies, including no doubt the policies that Europe will come forward with uh, to save troubled companies. This is the problem of the poor much bigger mm -hmm. politically sooner or later, and maybe in different ways in each country. We are in time where the very social fabric is going to be torn by widening disparity. And the longer that the downturn lasts, the more political will be the pressure. For mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, you know, just a, just a little background on that. Um, so the Euro dollar system like I've described many, many times before, it is the only currency in the world right now. The ECB gets dollars, and from there, it credit multiplies it out. And what you're seeing today is nothing more, to go on to what Harold was saying, is the political structure in Europe trying to maintain the status quo. You know, that's all they're doing. They're not fixing anything. They're just maintaining the status quo. And because the Federal Reserve is pumping in liquidity 
um, you don't see a W-shaped recovery. You're just going to see a V, 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 V-shaped recovery until until they can legitimately kick the can down the road in another 10 years. But in about another 10 years, we're going to see the same issues pop up again. The problem is, like Harold was saying, um, the, the public is the one bearing the brunt of all this. And the, the, longer, the, the longer that this occurs, the bigger problem that you're going to see with populism arising within, within Europe and even within the United States. You know, the extremes start taking control of the narratives, and it's not a healthy system. Okay. Uh, do you like? Would you like to uh, add something to the other points of Harold Albert before we move to the next question? Because it was not just about the euro dollar no, system; it was also about the financial system, the global liquidity crisis. You are propagating a strengthening of the U.S. dollar, but then again, uh, if we keep this track, uh, where is this leading us? Is, is there going to be a transition of the global finance system? Because all the system, the way it works right now, is not a sustainable uh, way. So well, the only, every the only, next the, the only way that you have a transition of a global uh, financial order is if you have multipolarity. We do not live in a multipolar world, not financially, not not uh, technologically, not militarily. That's just the reality of it. And I know some people don't want to hear that because they have grand ideas of how the Europeans and how Europe works and China and Russia and whatnot. But this is not a multipolar world. So long as the United States is the superpower status, that it's just the dollar is it. There is nothing else. The dollar and the Fed. There is no. There is nothing else under the foundation of it at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I see. I the only I central bank that matters is is the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> term so the systems use. Uh, Harold, just a second. Just a second, and you can you can you yeah. can elaborate further because Albert made a point that I can I can build my my next question on. And you can also add uh, your um, your points uh, to it, Harold. Um, so my my main long-term global scenario. Um, is oh, you cut out a second, uh, Valina. But go ahead, Harold. Go ahead and start make the point about uh, what you were going to say about the Federal Reserve and central banks. Well. The only way to get a new arrangement would be for there to be agreement among several key governments to what they are doing, sovereignty over their monetary financial to some group. But nobody's ready to do that, not only not the U.S., but no no government in in europe is going to is willing to yield sovereignty over its financial structure they can't even yield to each other within the european union it's an impasse it continues the punch of year after year always flouted whatever ruling there was and got away with it because of france there is no possibility for an international agreement so the system we have is a system which will continue. The IMF 
And that's why uh, we don't see the class of four two point oh. Yeah, the you know this special drawing rights idea is still floating around, but nobody will agree to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Melina, welcome back. <laughs> oh, we can't hear you, Melina. Melina uh, is disconnected. Oh. Well. Um. <clears throat> like I was, like, like I just asked you, Harold. There's a lot of talk about Plazo Accords 2.0, but just as you specified, what what leadership takes control and what leaders come together and could even discuss that at the moment? Well, I think has tried to organize some meetings over Zoom um, of the G7 or the G20, but it's it's more theater than anything else because no there is no one out naming three or four leaders you are meeting who have power to decide anything I mean when I go through each country I can't find uh, what power they're able to make a decision Boris Johnson could make some decisions uh, but he seems preoccupied um, with with uh, internal UK matters for the moment. As Brexit, maybe maybe the British could play a role. Mm -hmm. But there's no leader, not a single leader on the of Europe, Asia, maybe with the exception of Singapore, or I guess. We'd have to say there was strongly North Korea, but not relevant to this issue. Yeah. But there's no one to come to. to um, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Melina, are you there? Oh, we can't hear you, Melina. Yeah. I think her, her, her microphone is off. The system has has failed us once again. <laughs> um, Harold, um, really quick, one subject that we haven't talked about is actually uh, the supply chains for food, because it's been in the media lately that there's food shortages globally. Um, I, you know, I like to divide that up because, I mean, the United States is pretty self-reliant when it comes to food. Um, I think the biggest stress point that we see is parts of Europe and obviously China. Yes. <clears throat> China cannot feed itself with the ter territory it has. It, it can fish the South Sea enough protein for the Chinese people, the size of the population. So China depends on the world. And many other countries also depend on the world, particularly many countries are dependent on U.S. exports of food because we are a food surplus generator. We have problems inside the U.S. Uh, because our system for distribution of food is, in two, is split in two. One system to supply retail uh, grocery chains and the other system to supply commercial users. Uh, and the food is packaged differently, labeled differently, uh, sent by different trucks and trains. 
So we're now going through a terrible problem. How do we move food from the commercial side, which is going to waste, over to the retail side? Uh, <clears throat> but it, uh, the, the food supplies, most countries are going to continue to depend on world food distribution systems. Um, because very few countries are self-sufficient. Um, so I, I would say one of the areas of common interest is going to emerge and simply feeding nations, there will be an interest to make more coherent how to move food around. Mm -hmm. um, it will be an area of common interest that politicians can agree on, even though it sounds mundane to people who are fascinated by Wall Street and uh, the London market. Interesting. Melina, can you hear me can now? Yes, we can, Melina. Ah, great. Yes, you're back. Thank you. COVID-19, sorry guys for that, but uh, we have to adapt very quickly to the reality of uh, digitalization. And I'm really sorry that I couldn't, couldn't ask my question till the end, but I'm using the opportunity to do it now before the internet uh, decides to kick me off once again. And that is that in my long-term global system scenario, I see two possibilities on the one side, either a systemic decoupling I called a systemic rivalry between United States and China already in 2014-2015. Now we are already witnessing this kind of systemic uh, rivalry uh, unleashing in all relevant systems. Uh, but it might be also possible to witness a systemic coexistence. That means a US-led bloc the way how you described it, certainly with European allies, but also with allies in other parts of the world, in uh, the Indo-Pacific region, in the Latin American continent, in Africa. Uh, and then again, we will probably see a China-led bloc uh, with the dragon bear that we've outlined for our listeners and also with other key uh, partners. Uh, what kind of uh, possibility uh, do, you, uh, do you foresee for the global order in the next decade? Big question, Belina. Uh, one of, the, I guess the key question is, can China's um, one belt, one road survive? Uh, has extended reach very widely, but it's built on, um, borrowed money, it's debt-driven system uh, encompassing many countries. It, one can wonder whether it's possible for China to develop permanent relations with much of Africa when the history of Africa has been for local governments to kick out and simply nationalize resources. Uh, Never suited them. Will the will the Chinese be able to carry the burden of this huge, huge debt structure? That structure. Um, 
can can the Chinese nation sustain this really big defense security spending program alongside this um, fragile debt-driven built one road structure. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of stresses in China and the to, to me does not yet show signs of of any signs of real recovery. Uh, now maybe substantial political ramifications inside China. When I talk with politicians in Washington, uh, you know, members about China works through these problems. And the answer I, every time is it's too big, it can't last. It's interesting that politicians size it up that way. And it is a question can China continue to manage 1.3 or 1 billion people in one structure with all of its efforts worldwide in jeopardy? And, and and dependent on extremely high defense security. It's a bit, Russia in part, Russia uh, has huge military capabilities, but uh, under Putin, its, its agenda is to act as a destabilizing force in as many places as possible, so as to remain relevant Russia doesn't want to go to war. Uh, it, 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 it will avoid going to war. Um, so it's a um, without coherent global strategy. So uh, so Dragonberry is a sickly monster uh, with a, a a mind which is in transition, but I don't know whether it's going towards nervous breakdown or a more coherent way. Yeah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> if I can interject, Terrell, does speaking on uh, your thesis, whether it's a decoupling or if there's some kind of stabilization between the U.S. and China, you know, I, I lean on the on, on the side of, of a more reserved aspect where the U.S. and China will find some sort of happy medium. Uh, I mean, supply chains, although some manufacturing is going to leave at an expedited rate, not all of it's going to leave. It's expensive. It's timely. It, it just it, it's it's a, there's a lot of stress on the system for that to happen. Um, so there will be some sort of co- cohesive nature, but I don't think that actually happens until new leadership enters the the, the fray, both in the United States and in China. I mean, right now, uh, Xi is having domestic issues with the Dang family out of Guangdong. I mean, that's where the economic heart of China is at the moment. And they're not happy with Xi for, for good reason. I mean, this trade this trade dispute has gone has gone well over any of the estimates that they've come up with, and has been hurting the the pockets of the wealthy elite in China. So they're not going to stand for it. You know, structures of power they they move where money moves. So you know they'll they'll find a way to get rid of Xi. And once that happens, and then at that point, I believe uh, the United States and China can find some kind of cohesion. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I have uh, two questions from the audience. Uh, this will be our last uh, two questions. Uh, please keep it short. Um, mm-hmm. The one is, uh, um, 
doesn't a shift in reliance to India lead to vulnerability? And the other one is what kind of an alternative to the US dollar do you foresee to emerge? So alternative to the US dollar as a kind of a reserve or a second second uh, second currency. Uh, what is uh, what is your take on that? What's the first question again? The first question is, doesn't a shift in reliance to India, what you've outlined uh, in terms of reconfigurations of supply chains towards India? So there, there is a question in this regard, whether this reliance on India might not lead to vulnerabilities. Well, I, I, you know, India is within the sphere of the U.S. umbrella militarily and economically. They're within the Commonwealth, so they have, you know, deep networks tied to the United States and the U.K. So I don't think that that's necessarily a vulnerability. Um, Harold mentioned a long time ago uh, the Chinese and India uh, tensions on their border. You could definitely see the Chinese act to try to stress the Indians in that aspect, especially if they're taking away uh, economic gain from the Chinese. Okay, and second question was about alternative well, to the U.S. dollar. Well, let me answer the Indian part. Uh, well, yeah, two points. Uh, just um, of India and the United States, we have to re keep in mind we are in a time in history where national intelligence of advanced computers every couple, three decades or longer. And if you look at the U.S., uh, if you go around all our universities to look at the computer departments, uh, you find in most of them that the head of the department in is an uncle with whom he works night and day. Uh, the interaction of India U.S. is really deep. So, regarding the alternative, everybody wants one, seems to talk about one, uh, see any alternative uh, at any time soon, maybe a few years from now. But for the time being, there is no alternative. Uh, every country is short of liquidity. Banks led by the reserve is creating more liquidity. What he needs is dollars, not local currency. And it's because any expansion of an economy anywhere that involves international business requires dollars to function. Um, a, 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 a system concocted by the IMF would simply not be acceptable to most governments. He's in trouble. What does it do? It turns to the Fed and says, we, can we send you some euros and you send us some fresh dollars in exchange called swap lines? The um, U.S. is continuously bailing out the ECB. There is no alternative. So maybe it's time for everybody to acknowledge, all right, that's the way the world works.
Yeah, I, I, you know, again, uh, Harold, you know, that's that's correct. I mean, when you're talk, talking about an alternative to the dollar, it's not a simple answer of economics and debts and numbers on a piece of paper. There's military and political components to such a such a system. Uh, there is no other there is no other alternative right now that can replace the dollar politically, militarily, uh, economically. They're just they're just it doesn't exist at the moment. Um, you would have to have the United States fall from grace and then have another power come up and start taking over supply chains and economic and trade deals. It just it, where do you see that right now? The Chinese are taking a step back. The Europeans have no military to speak of. So, so where does this where 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 does this thought of multipolarity come from? It's nothing more than fantasy, in my opinion. So, in the foreseeable future, it is the dollar, and that's 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 the end. That's case closed in my book. Mm -hmm. Okay, gentlemen. So, I think that we've managed, do uh, despite all the technical difficulties, uh, to have a very nice one-hour wrap-up of uh, current systemic uh, processes and developments. And we addressed uh, most uh, relevant issues, specifically related to the US-China rivalry, emerging uh, regional powers, and also relevant uh, issues related to the uh, key socioeconomic systems. And um, by doing so, I think that we uh, basically uh, gave the uh, gave a three thirty thousand foot view on the global system for which i really really thank you uh, thank you for being with me in the last hour and uh, thank you to our listeners and watchers for the patience uh, and um, for the interest and uh, yes uh, we will continue covering these issues uh, we all three of us are um, available also on social media on our Twitter accounts. And uh, like I said, uh, we are writing a book on the Dragon Bear on the relevance of the systemic coordination between China and Russia. And hopefully this book will emerge uh, not late than the US presidential elections because there will be changes, not only in the global system, but also in our political systems. So um, yes, I'm looking forward to having you once again uh, on my talk uh, next month, hopefully. Thank you very much, right. Harold and Albert. Thank you, Valina. <clears throat> right, thanks, Valina. <laughs>